Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series in the book of Romans, Getting It Right with God, and we're in the very practical part of Romans. We like to think everything's practical, but this is the, uh, a lot of times in, in books of the Bible that Paul wrote, you'll have a theological section, and it'll turn into a very practical theology section, how you put things into practice. That began in chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8 today. Imagine the power of we. An old African proverb states, if you think that you are too small to make a difference, try spending the night in a closed room with a mosquito. Most Christians feel very small and insignificant in the world, like we're just a tiny mosquito and we can't really make a difference. And we have this seemingly impossible cause, which I would agree I feel small. We have this great cause to reach the world of seven billion people with the gospel. And the way I read the New Testament, the lost person on the other side of the globe is my problem and my responsibility. So we have this impossible cause that never ends. We recognize our own limitations. And and not even entering the cause, not even entering the battle seems logical because it's just too big. We're just a drop in the bucket. All of us feel that way in light of what God asks us to do, to take the gospel to every person on the planet. But great causes can be achieved against great odds when what seems insignificant is not alone. When it's combined with many other people who feel insignificant. Did you know that a single strand of spider silk is thinner than a human hair, but five times stronger than steel of the same width. A spider silk rope, just two inches thick, could reportedly stop a Boeing 747 in flight. On its own, it can do very little. But bound together with other strands in a rope, it has awesome strength. That's just a great illustration of what we can do together. And all great causes combine the energy and effort and resources of the many. Usually that's lost in the details, as only a few in any great cause make the headlines. For example, when you think of the moon and landing on the moon, what what one man comes to mind? Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong. After NASA Apollo 11's incredible feat of three men on the moon in June of 1969. Now, for those of you who are younger, we did land on the moon. It was a long time ago. Astronaut Michael Collins said, all this is possible only through the blood, sweat, and tears of thousands of people. All you see are the three of us, but underneath the surface are thousands and thousands of others. According to author Catherine Timish, there were about 400,000 others who helped with the Apollo 11 mission. When I first read that, I was shocked by that number. In her book, Team Moon, Themis shares stories of these hidden heroes, spacesuit seamstresses, radio telescope operators, parachute designers, and others who made it possible to get men to the moon, get them home, and let the rest of the world watch it while it happened. 
at the Kennedy Space Center. 17,000 engineers, mechanics, soldiers, contractors, and other workers set up the enormous missile for the launch. And then there were the two Bobs, the guys in Houston monitoring just how little fuel was left in the lunar module during its descent to the surface. And Team Moon also included a 24-year-old computer whiz kid named Jack Garman. And I'm wondering if the company Garman Industries comes from that. I'm not sure who helped work through worrisome computer glitches during the Eagle's landing. The computer code that ran all the systems was developed by a team of software engineers at MIT, led by Margaret Hamilton. Roughly 500 people worked on the spacesuit, including one seamstress who commented, we didn't worry too much until the guys on the moon started jumping up and down. That gave us a little bit of an eyebrow twitch. No wonder astronaut Neil Armstrong would later say, and rightfully so, that as he took his first step on the moon, he immediately thought about all those 400,000 people who had given him the opportunity to make that first step. 400,000 people involved in that cause. And without any small group of them, we would still be dreaming of landing on the moon. The combined efforts of the many, the seemingly less significant, the people who never made the headlines, the people whose names really only appear in the ledgers of the companies they work for but were never public, those names are lost. But they were part of the great cause of landing on the moon. The Bible uses this concept, this argument, when referring to the body of Christ, the church. How even though we may feel insignificant, together we are Christ's body in this world and we are here to change the world together. And there is incredible power in that, in our combined efforts. In Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about this. Now this is a passage about what we typically call spiritual gifts. And I'm going to expand our thinking hopefully a little bit on that topic today. But I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12 if you have a Bible. If you don't, just listen uh, through just a few verses here. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now this is actually one of the shorter sections on gifts. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But there are several different passages in the New Testament. The most notable one in the book of Corinthians to the Corinthian church so we're going to talk a little more broadly than just the Roman passage, but we're going to look at three principles that Paul mentions here, and then a few applications. First, since God is the one who gifts us, there are no truly self-made people and no room for pride. Since God is the one who gifts us, there are no truly self-made people and no room for pride. Now that's a little hard to hear as Westerners, people in the Western world. 
Because the reality is, in the Western world, there's a lot less talk about team, and there's a lot more talk about me or I. Because there's this rugged individualism that, that comes sort of in the, in the backdrop of our cultures. And so a lot of people really do feel like whatever they achieve in life, that was up to them. They really did it. And Paul is really speaking into that thinking, saying that's just not really true. Because no matter who you are, no matter what you achieve, no matter what educational level and job level and economic level you've attained to, the reality is you did not create you. God gifted you. You might have taken advantage of some things. You might have been a good steward of the gifts that God gave you. But God is the one who gave you the gifts you have. Now again, before we jump into this, there are several texts in the Bible about gifts. This is actually sort of a, a medium-sized one to a shorter one. And the list of gifts in any of these passages, I, I would suggest are not complete. And because the texts don't have the same lists, and, and I find that a little bit problematic. There is some overlap, but if I'm in the New Testament living in, in Rome, and I just get the book of Romans, and it might be a number of years later before I get the book of Corinthians, I would assume these are all the gifts. If I'm just living in Corinth and I get that book, I would assume that's a complete list of the gifts. If I'm in one of the other cities where gifts are mentioned and it's a different list, I would assume that's all of the gifts. So I, I say that to say this. I don't believe that the list of gifts is intended to be complete because it doesn't seem to be complete book to book in the New Testament. And I want to look at it that way today as well. That what God has created and who we are goes beyond these lists in these specific books. This passage follows a key passage about dedicating, consecrating ourselves to God. And naturally, if we're going to give ourselves back to God, so Paul has argued in chapters 1 through 11, the great gifts that God has given us, not our gifts to serve others, but the gift of salvation, the gift of being declared righteous in Christ, that God's not going to hold our sin against us, that we've been given this free gift of salvation because of Jesus. In light of that, Romans 12, give yourselves back to God. Offer your members, the parts of your body, as, as, as a part of a sacrifice to God who's been so good to us. So Romans 12, 1 and 2 is about that, this dedication, this consecration of who you are. Now naturally, that involves how we serve God, and how we serve the world. Now, in the passages about this, in, especially in Corinthians as well, we have these, this key theme of pride that seems to have cropped up in the early church. And, and it happens, and Paul talks about this in many places, when we begin to compare ourselves with others. So what we've got going on in our world today is not new. But I would suggest what Paul's talking about here, we start comparing ourselves to others, we start thinking we're, we're pretty hot, we're pretty good, we're pretty special, how lucky God is to have us. I think that issue is worse today than it's ever been in history because of some of the technology that's available in our world today. People have always had this weakness, but it's bad. According to Moya Sarner in The Guardian, this deadly sin of comparisonitis, new word, is more present in our everyday lives than ever before thanks to social media. 
She writes that not only do we compare ourselves to friends and neighbors, as we've always done. We had a small group of people we looked at, and we sort of measured ourselves against them. But now online, we measure up against people all over the globe. This has just gone to, you know, comparisonitis on steroids. We measure ourselves to celebrities and strangers and friends of friends. One therapist has coined this comparisonitis, an emotional sickness which can't be intellectualized or curbed by willpower. Furthermore, Sarner writes, no age group or social class is immune from envy. Ethan Cross, professor of psychology at the University of Michigan, writes, envy is being taken to an extreme. We are constantly bombarded by photoshopped lives, he says, and that exerts a toll on us, the likes of which we've never experienced in the history of our species. And it is not particularly pleasant. Sarner concludes, while we are busy finding the perfect camera angle, our lives become a dazzling, flawless, but hard shell empty inside, but for the envy of others and ourselves. Our world has a problem with this, and it's not new. People have always done this. We look at our lives, we look at the lives of others, we try to measure where we're at. It existed in the early church, it exists all around us in the world, and it exists in the church again today. And one theological principle is intended to drain us of the pride and envy that comes from this comparisonitis. And that is, God made us. You, you weren't there at your conception making yourself. Your parents were, but you weren't. God made us. God made you. God uniquely gifted you. Nobody does it on their own. Even if you achieve great things in life, sometimes you'll achieve them against great odds, but many times it's the family you were born into, the situation you were born into that really helped you and aided you. Some of you might not have had those good situations, and it's a reaction against that sometimes that becomes a motivating factor. But we're never truly self-made. Because even if you feel like you were largely responsible for your success, you're still just building on what God made in you in the first place. And Paul alludes to that when he speaks of our allotted measure of faith, which comes from God, our allotted measure of faith. Now, scholars kind of struggle to pinpoint the meaning of that phrase, but it seems to relate to when we grasp how God has made us or gifted us and have the faith to exercise those gifts. That's our allotted measure of faith. You might say your allotted gifting and the faith that comes from God to use it. For his glory. But the warning against pride is clear. God's the maker. God's the gifter. Nobody gets to any pinnacle of leadership or success or notoriety on their own. It's true in the world and in the church. There's no room for pride. You know, it's interesting. They've done studies on, on business leaders, people in Fortune 500 companies. And you would think, if you're in a Fortune 500 company in the Western world, I mean, you kind of had the world by the tail. The stock options alone for most of those CEOs end up, by the time they retire, I would suspect, in the tens of millions of dollars. I say that as a not very happy shareholder of those companies. But there is so much wealth accompanying those kinds of positions. And if you, if you research how those people feel about themselves and their roles, do you know what they do? They compare 
their stock options if they're in the Fortune 500 with the stock options of the persons in the Fortune 100, and they're not happy. The most powerful, the most wealthy business leaders in the world have the same problem that second graders have on the playground. Who's got the best toys? Who's got the most opportunity? We don't change. It's very hard for us in this area. If you can conquer this issue, your chance at happiness is off the charts better than the other people around you. And if you can't, you're going to spend your life comparing your gifting and your talent and your looks to everyone around you. You're going to be comparing the size of your house, the size of your bank account. You're going to be comparing your family, your children, your professional accomplishments, and your retirement prospects. And this deep struggle we all have, Paul says, shows up in church. And Paul says, just don't let it happen. God is the gifter. There's no room for pride for anyone. Just be who God made you and use that for his glory. Second, our different giftings are exactly why we are indispensable to each other. Our different giftings are exactly why we are indispensable to each other. Now, when you became a Christian, if you've crossed that line of faith and become a Christian, if you haven't, what happens when you become a Christian is, guess what? You are now connected to a group of people that you might not have a lot in common with. But now your family. Chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, for just as we have many members in one body, he's talking about different parts of our physical bodies, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, how did this happen? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul gives us the theological basis for how we became connected to each other. Now, this isn't the practical side of this, but this is why God says we're in the body of Christ together. And he says there it was spirit baptism at your point of faith. So what I mean by that is this. When you came to a place where you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for your sins, and you decided to be a Jesus follower, that's your point of faith. You crossed the line of faith. You said, I want to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. When that happened, there were some things that went on spiritually inside of you that the Spirit of God did. Number one, the Spirit of God connected you to the work of Christ. In some mystical way, you were connected to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection 2,000 years ago, which gives you the power to change. God's spirit in you, part of spirit baptism. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says there's another aspect to spirit baptism. You were not just connected to what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. You just became connected to every other Christian on the planet. You were baptized into the body of Christ, which means now you're connected to every other Christian. And that is intended to diminish our differences and cause the sense of need and connection with each other. In 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about this, he talks about how Jews and Greeks were connected, people with very different religious and philosophical backgrounds, slave and free. In the early church, in the city of Rome, more people were actually slaves than were free in some Roman cities. Imagine an early church where you've got these people with, with vastly different you know, economic profiles and social profiles, slavery and free people in the same church. 
Paul says, one spirit, the spirit of God, united all of these people together, and now they are in one body. It is intended to break down differences unlike any other movement or emphasis in history. So you became spiritually connected to people that you might have nothing in common with except for Jesus. And now Paul says, because of that, we're a body. We need each other. Now we're to change the world together. Now we actually are called family. We're family. People from different racial groups, different economic groups, different social outlooks. We're family. And this family tie is intended to supersede all other earthly ties. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Which is interesting because in the church, it's, it's so easy to maybe reject each other over, you know, a relational snafu or something that goes wrong and we kind of pick up our toys and leave. God says, we're, we're in the body. We're family. We're now together in the body of Christ. Christ is still the head, but we are the parts. And together we minister to each other and we reach the world together. Now, a couple of issues I just want to clarify. So what are these gifts that we bring to the body together, which Paul begins to talk about here as he says, we need each other. Well, there's a variety of views of gifts, and I'm not sure that any of us know exactly what was intended or can completely replicate what was going on in the first century church either. But some people believe that our gifts are actually the natural abilities that God gave us when we were born that we sort of grow up with. And whether we're a Christian or a non-Christian, we have these gifts. Some people would say they are those natural abilities that God gave us at birth that are now heightened by God's Spirit because now we have the Spirit of God in us. He can use our natural abilities for his glory. So natural abilities sort of on steroids because the power of Jesus is in us. Some would argue that our spiritual gifts have nothing to do with our natural gifts and that when every person came to faith in Christ, they were given sort of a set of gifts that has nothing to do with their natural abilities. Truth is, we don't know entirely, and it likely is parts of all three of those, depending on the gift. There were certainly some gifts given to people in the New Testament that were supernatural in origin. They would not have had them as non-believers but there are other gifts that I think we would say, you know what, if somebody's good at certain things in the world and in the church, some gifting has to do with the natural abilities God has given us. Another thing that's very controversial as it relates to gifts is their continuation or not. Some people believe that all gifts mentioned in the New Testament exist for today and can be used exactly the way they were used 2,000 years ago. Other Christians believe that most gifts exist today, but some may have faded out during the apostolic era. And this is why you have Pentecostal churches, charismatic churches, and non-charismatic churches. It's over that view of gifts. Some people believe that, that during the Jesus era and the apostolic era, it was sort of an era of miracles because Jesus was presenting the kingdom of God in person on this earth. And then when Jesus left and the apostolic era faded out, this era of miracles seemed to have sort of faded historically. That has a lot to do with a variety of denominations that have been formed. So there's not an agreement on that. But the best way to view gifts, in my opinion, today, when you're thinking of how God can use you, is to look at these passages and maybe even go a little further than these passages, and I admit I'm doing that, okay? 
and view how God can use us in the broadest possible way. When I look at the New Testament and I see that even the different New Testament books have very different lists of gifts and varied lists, again, as I said earlier, it makes me wonder, well, the people who just got the book of Romans and were living out their Christian life there don't have some of the gifts listed in Corinthians. That might be a little different than other lists as well. I'm puzzled by that. So I want to have the broadest view here and look at it this way. What can God use in us? And I would expand this a little bit and say, our spiritual gifts that are listed in the scriptures, our abilities, our natural abilities that we know that we have, whether they're listed in the scriptures or not, our interests, our passions that God can use because we care about certain things. They might not be listed in the spiritual gifts category, but we care deeply about them. How about our experiences? I believe the beginning of one of the books of Corinthians talks about this, how, you know, when we suffer, we now have something we can offer to others. And a lot of great ministries and great causes, both in the world and in the church, have started because people have suffered greatly. And they they thought, there wasn't enough support for me in this area, so I'm going to start a ministry, I'm going to start a movement based on some terrible experience I had, so other people have help when they go through a similar experience. Our gifts, our abilities, our interests and passions, our experiences, the needs of the people around us. That's not a gifting issue, but we can't ignore it. One business leader writes, I love this, six personalities that every business needs to thrive. Assembling your office team is like putting together a puzzle. To succeed, you need to find the proper combination of complementary talents. Hiring a bunch of go-getters is not the sole solution to creating a successful team. Big egos and arrogance can turn the office into a battlefield, a killer for a small company. Instead, he writes, strive to balance as you hire. Here are the six personalities that every startup needs. Now think of this as it relates to the church. The dreamer. The dreamer is a motivating force in creating a company and a sustaining force every day after. The dreamer inspires, excites, and leads the company from a sky-high view. Probably a church planter at some point in a church's history. The manager. The manager takes a dream and makes it happen. They're pragmatic, reliable, and have the initiative to turn ideas into action. It's all about being approachable, trustworthy, and forward-thinking. The builder, the builder thinks like an architect and has a clear understanding of the company vision and knows how to create it. He or she is intuitive, bright, inventive. The workhorse, the workhorse is happy to step up and do whatever it takes to make the company engine purr. You'll never hear the words, it's not my job, come out of that person's mouth. The workhorse gets things done behind the scenes. The penny pincher. The penny pincher never commits to a cost without first considering the options. He or she is creative with budgets, doesn't spend unnecessarily, and understands the difference between need and want. The social butterfly. The person has the ability to connect or to create connections among team members, laugh at themselves and others, and shift perspectives at the right time. They're an essential ingredient to strong morale and a happy team. Now, I read that to say this. I guarantee that this modern list, this secular list of the personalities needed in any business to survive could also be overlaid on God's, gifts of li- God's list of gifts quite nicely. It takes a body, both in the church and in the world, which means the church needs us all.
Third, we make the greatest difference when we serve in our God-given gifts and passions. Paul says this in verse 6. He says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. In other words, we serve in our area of strength. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if serving in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, it goes on to basically say, whatever our gift is, whatever God has made us to be, that's where we're going to have the greatest impact in the church and in the world, when we sort of stay in that lane. Now this is really common sense. I want to offer a couple exceptions to this. Did you know that if you look at the gifts that are listed in the Bible and, and look for those words in other places, you will often find that the gifts that are listed in the Bible are also commands for all of us. Isn't that interesting? We're all commanded to reach the world with the gospel, but there are some people who specifically are gifted with evangelism. It's much more natural for them. We're all commanded to serve but there also is a gift of service. We're commanded to exercise hospitality. There is a gift of hospitality. We're all commanded to give. There actually are some people who just love it. It's, it's a gift of giving. They're not just faithful to it. It's natural. So it's not like we can say, and, and, and I've, I've run into this at times with Christians, and it's kind of painful to watch. It's not like we can say, you know, that's just not my gift. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to do the right thing because it's just not my gift. Because some things require the whole body. I remember running into a couple uh, many, many years ago in ministry, and they were an older couple, and I think that they might have been violating verse 3, maybe thought a little more highly than they were intended to, but anyway, I remember talking to them about how they could serve in the church, and, and the woman sort of blurted out, you know, well, we don't do kids in kitchen. We don't do kids, and we don't do kitchen. You know, like, that's just beneath us. And I believe what they wanted to do was sort of be set up as mentors of others. Well, respectfully, anybody who's willing to say to a lead pastor, like, yeah, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do this, should not be mentoring others. Because that's not an attitude I want reflected in any Christian that I know. We're all intended to do many of the things that are gifts in the body, because the body has great needs. But after those considerations, that many gifts are also commands, some needs require the whole body, after that, there are some ways to sort of figure out, you know, where, what would my gift be? How could God use me? Now, one thing you could do is to learn how to stay in your lane is take a spiritual gifts test or inventory. Not a big fan of this personally. And I know that probably surprises you because I haven't necessarily found them helpful I don't think they're usually necessary. I think typically, once you get to a certain age, you kind of know what your wheelhouse is and what you care about and what you're good at. And sometimes I think these things are a little confusing because a lot of times it's like, well, if I test out in this area, then the church has to have a job for me in that area. And, and churches aren't really structured like that typically. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But you could take a gifts inventory. That might be interesting if you've never taken one before. But another question would be, what, what are you good at? Another question would be, what do you actually care about? What have you experienced in life that has been very painful that God could use you to help others with in the same area? 
Here's a good one. What do you think that everyone else should be doing? That's probably your gift. If you're tempted to come to my office and say, Paul, everybody should be doing this. The church should have a ministry doing this. And you're one of those people who wants to tell us what the church should be doing, but you don't want to do it. That's probably actually your gift. And you should be doing that. It's certainly your passion. It's where your heart is. So find it and use that for God. I want to just close with four applications here. First, everyone can be used by God. You know, you wouldn't think you'd have to say that, but I think the average Christian just does see themselves as insignificant in the kingdom. And I think in the Western world, we sort of live in the Christian superhero world as well. You know, famous pastors, famous authors, and so on. And I think that's actually very hurtful to the average Christian feeling like they can make a difference. Thousands are coming to hear him preach. His ministry has gone global. He has a new book coming out. Now, this was written a little over a decade ago. That's quite a resume for a boy without any arms or legs. Nick Vucevic, 25-year-old Australian, was born without arms and legs. I've seen pictures of him. Vucevic's parents, devout Christians who planted a church in Australia right before Nick was born, found it hard to understand how God could use their son's loss for good. But he has. Reading in Sunday school about being made in the image of God seemed like a cruel joke to Nick. He seesawed between despair and begging God to grow arms and legs for him as a child. He contemplated suicide when he was eight. And when he was 15, though, one story in the Bible answered one of his toughest questions. When I read the story of the blind man, Jesus said he was born so that the work of God could be revealed through him, Vucevic said. That gave me peace. And I said at 15, Lord, here I am. Use me, mold me, make me the man you want me to be. This young man, this young boy with no arms, no legs. Vucevic learned to write using the two toes on the partial foot that protrudes from his body. He learned how to throw tennis balls, answer the phone, walk, and swim. He invented new ways to shave and brush his own teeth. He even learned double, he earned double degrees in accounting and financial planning by age 21. He has since become a motivational speaker to Christian congregations in over 12 countries, and he's ministered to over 2 million people face-to-face. He also oversees Life Without Limbs, an organization for the physically disabled. No arms, no legs, no worries. His first book came out, I believe, in 2009. I know what some of you are thinking, and this is a little twisted. Well, yeah, but look at the platform he has. He has no arms and no legs. Do you really want that platform? The point is, we all would look at that situation and say, what could he ever do for God? And he looked at that situation, and God looked at that situation and said, I can use him to change the world. We all have something that can be used to make a difference. Second, find your lane and stay in it. Gifts, abilities, passions, interests, experiences, needs. If you were God, where would God 
if you were God, where would you place you in the harvest? Think of it that way. If you were God, looking at your life, what do you think God would say about where you can be used by him? And I think one of the struggles we have with the spiritual gifts issue, it's a very real issue, is we, we look at Sunday morning church and, and we think through what we might be good at and we think through Sunday morning, it's like, well, there, there might not be a place for me to use my gifts because Sunday morning, the weekend services are about really the use of a couple of gifts. Somebody's going to have a teaching gift. There are going to be some people who have worship gifts instrumentally or vocally. There's going to be some serving going on with ushers and greeters and maybe some hospitality. And that's the weekend. And we're like, well, you know, once those kind of slots are filled, and if I have the gift of teaching, I'm not sure if Aaron's going to move Paul out of the way so I can exercise that. I mean, he might. You know, we kind of feel like when you look at the church, there might not be room for us to serve. The slots are filled. And, and there's kind of a philosophical struggle that I have even in my mind as you look at the gift issue. How does that work out? And I think there's a real mistake by looking at the church through the lens of the weekend. Rather, we need to look at the church as the body of Christ reaching the world when we think of our gifts. And, and I want you to think about this, that the idea of your gifting being unique can best be used often in this area of community and groups or small groups. It's the best place for our unique passions and interests and gifts to be expressed. And just imagine for a moment that a couple of years from now, there's a variety of small groups full of both Christians and their friends who may not yet be people of faith, who are just open to friendships and relationships based on all kinds of interests. But just as an extension of who you are, you know, groups that are in the neighborhood that might be studying the Bible or, or something about, you know, the hard questions uh, that we all find difficult to answer. Studying those things from a Christian perspective and maybe getting some people who are open to that in their group. How about mental health groups? My wife started a mental health ministry in our last church. You say, why would Dee Dee start a mental health ministry? Well, she's married to me, all right? That's why. All right, so, so she started a mental health ministry and it was really growing and meeting the needs of all kinds of people. Simple things like working out, involving others, connecting with others wherever you do work out, creating a little club to do those kinds of things for women or men. Ballroom dancing. You can reach people for Jesus if you want to learn how to ballroom dance. Cooking ethnic food. Focus on Thai. That's really good food. Parenting. Having people into your home to talk about how to raise our kids successfully. And use Christian curriculum. And just warn them, you know what? We're going to be looking at this from a Christian perspective. It won't be too much in your face, but we'll all learn some stuff together. How to have a better marriage. Who doesn't care about their marriage and their family? Christians or people who aren't Christians? Hiking together. Book clubs. Softball during the one month of the year where it doesn't snow here. Bowling. Making beer and wine. Jesus did it. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying 
What are you interested in? What are your passions? How can God take an interest or an experience or a hardship or a gift or an ability and connect you to four or five or six Christians and four or five or six people who may not be and create relationships for people? And if number of years from now there were scores of Christians following through with this idea with their passions while connecting with hundreds of people who are not Christians, I am telling you that is the way the world changes. It changes when people are rubbing their lives up against other people who don't necessarily agree with them, and then when somebody's life is falling apart, you know who they look to for answers? The Jesus follower. It's how the world has changed, and it's how God can best use our uniqueness and our gifting. Third, don't underestimate the power of we. It's a fascinating story. I I actually find it hard to believe. I would love to have observed this. Over the course of several months, Peter Skillman conducted a study pitting the skill of elite university students against a group of kindergartners. Groups of four built structures using 20 pieces of spaghetti, one yard of tape, one yard of string, and one marshmallow. The only rule, the marshmallow had to end up on top of whatever structure they built. Business students began by diagnosing the task, formulating a solution, and assigning roles. The kindergartners, by contrast, got right to work, trying, failing, trying again. They're communicating with each other. Author Daniel Coyle explains the outcome. We presume skilled individuals will combine to produce skilled performance. That assumption is wrong. In dozens of trials, the kindergartners built structures that averaged 26 inches tall, while the business school students built structures that averaged less than 10 inches. I find find this hilarious and almost hard to believe, and they should have asked for their money back at their institutions of higher learning. We see smart, experienced business students, and we find it difficult to imagine they would combine to produce a poor performance. We see unsophisticated, inexperienced kindergartners, and we find it difficult to imagine they would combine to produce a successful performance. Individual skills aren't what matters. What matters is the interaction. The kindergartners succeed not because they're smarter, but because they work together in a smarter way. They're tapping into a simple and powerful method in which a group of ordinary people can create a performance far beyond the sum of their parts. That's the business God is in. That's the church. On our own, we're the mosquito in the room. Together, somehow, the sum of the parts It's far greater than we would ever imagine. God is in the business of taking small groups of ordinary people and changing the world with them. The original 12 were not that impressive. Finally, you're never done on this side of eternity. You're never done on this side of eternity. 70 may be the new 60, 80 may be the new 70, but 85 is still pretty old to work. There's a study done south of the border calling it the era of the very old worker in America. And I'm suspecting it's happening here in Canada as well. They said overall, 255,000 Americans 85 years old or older were working over the past 12 months. That's 4.4% of Americans that age, up from 2.6% in 2006 before the recession. It's the highest number on record. They're doing all kinds of things. Crossing guards, farmers, ranchers, truckers. There are between 1,000 and 3,000 U.S. truckers age 85 and older. I didn't even think that was legal, based on the 2016 Census Bureau figures. It's doubled. 
America's aging workforce has defined the post-Great Recession labor market. Baby boomers and their parents are working longer as life expectancies grow, retirement plans shrink, education levels rise, and workers become, or work becomes less physically demanding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think they're missing the point. You know what's going on? As people age, they get to the point of retirement, they retire, and they recognize, you know what? My life doesn't have meaning like it did when I was involved in things. It's not the money. We want to matter, always. It's who we are. In activity, in work, we find meaning and purpose. In, in activity, in work, whether it's for pay or not, whether it's volunteering or for pay, we find belonging. We find transcendency. We sacrifice. My point is this. Christians never retire. You can retire vocationally, but Christians never retire because we are on a mission for God to change the world. And God has gifted us uniquely to do that. God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that in each one of our lives, you would help us to better understand how we've uniquely been created and how you can use us to make a difference. And I pray that if nothing else, you would help this time in each of our hearts to cause us to, to know that you have intentions for us, you have plans for us, and to begin the curiosity of asking ourselves, if I were God, how would I best place me in his harvest? What does God want from me? How can God use me? Do that in each of our lives, God, and engage us in the great cause of sharing who you are with this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.